Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Of the near 7 billion people alive, nearly one third of them identify as Christians. It feels like a lot of people. How did something so massive and widespread begin? We asked that question as we began the book of Acts. How did something so massive and widespread begin? There was no money in the early church. There was no proven leaders. We'll talk about that in a little bit more. There was no building. There was no technological tools. They did not have Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. How did something like this get so widespread, what, seeming, what seems like overnight? What was Christianity like in the infancy? What was the origin story? We were uh, at the movie theaters not too long ago, and I saw a poster that was advertising the, uh, the origin story of Gru. How many of you know who Gru is? Okay, some of you watch kids' movies. Uh, Gru is one of the uh, characters in the Minions movie, but it seems like whenever a storyline has run out, it's really easy to just figure out what happened in the origin, because people are really curious and interested about the origin of our superheroes. And so what's the origin story of the church? They were a small band of followers. They were disenfranchised. And in the last three or four years of Jesus's life, they were riding this really roller coasters of emotions, of spiritual victories, and then human failures all together. First, there was the hope and expectation raised by Jesus's life and his ministry. As he walked with the disciples for three plus years, he would uh, teach to thousands at a time and he would go through villages and uh, there are instances and stories that when he would go through some of those villages that every person that had a disease or sickness would be healed. They watched this. They saw all of this happen and no doubt as they evaluated their time with Jesus, their expectations just rose over the years, wouldn't they? They, he would teach to more and more people. They would see more and more wonderful signs. And then it seemed to all go wrong with his death. I mean, Jesus tried to prepare him, prepare them, right? He gave them clues. He gave them signs. Even the night before, they seemed to be a little bit confused about what was happening next. And so even as they went through three years of witnessing the power and the wisdom and the compassion of Jesus they go through his death. Again, this roller coaster of emotions. And that roller coaster would go down for about three days only to go right side up again as they rejoiced to see that Jesus was alive. And then he left again, all in the very short amount of time. We've talked about the book of Acts as being uh, uh, the way uh, uh, the Acts tells us how God directs the expansion of his kingdom throughout the world through a spirit-empowered church despite both internal obstacles 
and external opposition. So as we come out of the Gospels and we enter the book of Acts, in the very beginning of Acts, we looked at the church starting. We saw uh, them replace one of their disciples. We saw them uh, wait for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost, and we see the very beginning of the church with thousands of people coming to Jesus and coming to be baptized. At the very end of the book, what we're going to see is the church really send out its people. The church ends up becoming this vehicle that sends out people to the ends of the earth. We're going to hear stories about Barnabas and Paul and Timothy joining Paul and Silas. And we'll learn about Paul's three missionary journeys. And we'll really see the gospel of Jesus Christ go from Jerusalem into the known parts of the world. But right now in this middle, we're on the verge of phase two, which is the church scattering. This is the story of how the church under persecution ends up scattering through the known uh, areas right around Jerusalem. We'll learn about Stephen today. We'll hear about Paul in the coming weeks. We'll seek Saul's conversion. And as we understand the persecution, what we're going to find is this. Everything for the next few chapters is setting up the church to be sent out. But before it can do so, it needs to be prepared. So today, we're going to be introduced to one of the early church leaders, Stephen. So let's pick it up in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. You can follow along in your notes or in the Bible app. Acts chapter 6 and verse 8 says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So here's his one-sentence resume. It is Stephen, and the way he's described in Scripture is this, full of grace and power, and he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, this is not the first time we've read his name in the book of Acts. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 6, and there was a complaint amongst the church, right? I know church people arguing with one another, a little hard to imagine, so really go out there and put that together. There was a complaint within the church. There was a group of people known as the Hellenistic Jews, and these were people that predominantly absorbed the Greek culture, and they were upset because their widows were not being taken care of like the Hebrew uh, widows were. And so they raised the complaint forward. Uh, the church met. They listened. They validated the concerns. They weren't dismissed. They weren't kicked out. Uh, in fact, the church organized themselves and produced a solution. And the solution was this. While it was important for the apostles to make sure the widows were being taken care of, the priority for them at that time was prayer and preaching the word. And so the apostles gathered together and they appointed servants that would help serve the practical needs of the church. So they went to go elect the leaders, and this is what ended up happening. Stephen was one of those deacons. He was one of the Hellenistic Jews among them, chosen to serve the church with these practical needs. He was one of the first deacons. Now, during this conflict, the Hellenistic Jews... Uh, were chosen to be the deacons even though the Hebrew Jews outnumbered them. Why would they do that? If you're following in our notes, it's because of this. It was more important for the church to be unified than for them to get their way. Let's just let that sit with us for a minute. It was more important for the church to be unified than for them to get their way. 
the priority of unity for the church was paramount. They did not encourage anything that would divide the church against itself. It's a notable example to us that the unity is far more important in our church than our personal preference. Let me brag on you for a moment. Um, When it became clear in our community um, that we were going to go through a health crisis a few years ago, um, I remember being on the phone with doctors and um, just people. I remember, I don't know if you remember the phone call with Mike. I called Dr. Nichols and I called Mike and I said, Mike, what are we working with here? Like, how long do we need to be worried about this virus? Like one, like two weeks? <laughs> you laugh, you were thinking the same thing. And I remember Mike saying, oh no, Daniel, this is going to be months and months and months. And I remember when it became apparent that it would be really, really long term. Um, our church... Romans 12 says it this way, um, outdo one another in showing honor to one another. And I'm so proud of our church. Um, we, we, we spaced out the chairs and we, we asked you to wear masks and we asked you to, to fist bump and people thought this was an odd way to greet someone, but we asked you to do that or to air high five or, or different things. And you know what? Nearly every single person during that time honored one another. And I know you didn't want to. Because I didn't want to. I didn't want to go through all these extra uh, steps just to gather. And yet the more and more intense it became in our community, we just kept on honoring one another and honoring one another. Why? Because it became more important for us to be unified than for us to get our way. Right? Um, how important or necessary is it for you to get your way? At what cost is it in a relationship for you to really push to get your own way? The early church took this one situation and they thought, boy, there, there are some Hellenistic Jews. Now, understand, if you, if you read through the, the book of Acts like we have and you get to Acts chapter 6, we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of people that would be considered the early church. Conservative estimates are about five or 6,000 people. And a, and, a, and a portion of them were being neglected. A portion of them felt like they were not being tended to. A portion of them felt like they were not being shepherded like the, like the others were. And whether it was true or not, whether it was accurate or not, the Bible never tells us. All it ever tells us is the church listened, they validated the concerned, and they addressed the neglect. And I love that in their addressing of this, we cannot underscore how important it was for them, for the people to feel valued and heard and worth something. So the the leaders they elected to make sure that this this practical need was going to be taken care of, they said, we're we're actually going to elect just Hellenistic leaders within the church to make sure you're being taken care of. It was so important for the church to be unified rather than for them to get their own way. These were, uh, this was the priority for them. And again, we have to ask ourselves, 
What are we willing to give up for the sake of unity when it comes to our preferences? I'm not talking about our principles. I'm not talking about what we believe to be right and wrong according to scriptures. But what preferences are we willing to give up for the sake of unity, for the sake of the church? God did great wonders and signs through the apostles, but I believe part of the wonders and signs of the Euler Church was their ability to put aside their own personal preferences and pursue Christ together. So we're introduced to Stephen. It's a very quick bio. Let me set you up for the next few chapters. We're going to see from Stephen in the next uh, two chapters, we're going to learn about him. Then we're going to learn about a guy named Philip. He, again, was one of the deacons in the early church. Philip uh, took the gospel uh, to Caesarea. He's the one that baptizes an Ethiopian. Uh, We get to chapter 9 and we see Saul uh, and we're introduced to the Apostle Paul. And then chapter 10 and 11, we see Peter reaching out to Cornelius, among other things. All of this we're about to study, all of this we're about to read is getting us to the point where the gospel is being presented, not to the Jewish, just to the Jewish people anymore, but for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. And so this is what we see unfolding. Let's pick it up in verse 9. It says this, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Silica and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. They disputed with him. So what are we talking about? Who is the synagogue of the freedmen? Well, if uh, you have a different translation, it might say the synagogue of the freed slaves or the synagogue of the libertines. These were, uh, refer- these were referring to a group of people who had been slaves and now were free, and they had formed their own synagogue based on their faith. And yet these, uh, these individuals were Hellenistic Jews just like Stephen, but they were accusing Stephen of some very blasphemous things. And you can see there they rose up and disputed with him. Let's keep reading. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This is an amazing uh, passage. They couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now here's the thing. There's no indication that he was very smart. He could have been. We're not saying he was or wasn't, but there's no indication he was smarter than them, more intelligent or more articulate. In fact, I think Luke does a pretty good job of describing it. They could not withstand the wisdom and the what? Yeah, the Holy Spirit. It was one thing for them to withstand the wisdom and the way he articulated his defense, perhaps, but they could not withstand the spirit with which he was speaking. Let's keep on reading. Verse 11. So they secretly instigated men who said, how many of you like conspiracy theories? Here we are right here. They secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they evoke two names here. They evoked two names that would have resonated with the Jewish culture. They evoked Moses, right? The one who freed them from Egypt. The one who led them out of their captivity. The, the forefather of their faith. They evoked Moses' name. And they wouldn't evoke Jesus' name, but they evoked God's name. You see, the opponents of Stephen could not win a fair fight. So they used lies and secret strategies to shape popular opinion against Stephen. 
They said, well, he's, he's saying blasphemous things. Here's our faith, and this is what he's saying about Moses. This is what he's saying about God. Uh, he's saying blasphemous things. Doesn't that accusation sound familiar? Who else did they accuse of saying and doing blasphemous things, right? Now, uh, we'll see some similarities, especially next week as we look at Stephen's defense in chapter 7. But I want you to think of Stephen and the similarities of his life with Jesus' life. Now, as just a matter of um, history, how do you suppose Luke got this information? If it was uh, them secretly instigating, if this is behind-the-scenes stuff, we're not reading like a daily journal of Luke's account. Luke is obviously writing this after the fact. Who could have been part of those secret discussions that later would have given Luke some of the information behind the scenes. Yeah, the Apostle Paul. Likely Saul was a part of this discussion. Likely uh, Saul was a part of this instigation. And so after the fact, uh, when Luke is recording the details of the early church, no doubt he went to the Apostle Paul and said, hey, remember way back when, remember when this was happening and I want you to t- tell me about Stephen. What happened there? No doubt Paul was the one who gave them the insight so that Luke could share it with us. We keep reading verse 12. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Now the opponents of Stephen could do nothing against the followers of Jesus until they got popular opinion on their side. Because up until their side, popular opinion was with the early church. But it can be easily shaped, right? The same crowds that praised Jesus uh, in Luke 19, um, what we celebrate during Palm Sunday when he entered into Jerusalem, is the same crowd that days later called for his crucifixion. The crowd that loved the apostles in Acts chapter 2 and early on in Acts chapter 5 is going to be the same crowd that cry against Stephen. This is why we should never really let popular opinion shape the vision or the focus or the mandate of the church. But we let it rest on God's eternal word. And if we, are, uh, if we let popular opinion shake the very fundamentals of our faith or the fundamentals of of how we do what we do, what ends up happening is this. You're going to be rebuilding and reinventing the wheel at every whim because popular opinion just changes. Something goes out of style, just hold on to it. It'll come back in style, right? And so this is what happens uh, with them. The popular opinion finally shifted in the favor of Stephen's opponents. We read on the narrative, verse 13. They set up false witnesses who said, well, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And we read this perhaps today and we say, man, what is their deal This isn't that big of a deal. Well, if you look at verse 14, embedded in this is some crucial accusations against Stephen. It says this, uh, they were claiming that Stephen said Jesus is going to destroy this place and he will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They were really hitting on the buttons of the people. 
They were saying, this temple that you hold so dear, this place of worship that you hold so dear, this temple that had been promised to us from generations to generations, Stephen said that Jesus the Nazareth was going to destroy this. Do you really want that to happen? And furthermore, he's going to change all of our customs. Who likes change? Right? Jesus was uh, threatened to destroy this place, and they're going to change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Again, evoking the name of Moses. So here are the things they accused Stephen of. This is the four things they accused him of. They accused him that Jesus, that he was teaching that Jesus was greater than Moses, Jesus was God, Jesus was greater than the temple, and Jesus was the very fulfillment of the law. So let's take these one at a time. Jesus was greater than Moses. This was a very big deal for them. To say that he was on par with Moses was something else, but to say that he was greater than Moses uh, put him in a pantheon of greatness for the Jewish culture that they were not willing to accept. They were still waiting for a Messiah. They were still waiting for the promised one. And the promised one would be in the line of Moses and at Jacob, uh, uh, all of the forefathers of our faith. He would be born in the line of David, all of these things. And so those people, those members of their lineage, those members uh, being the forefathers of their faith, uh, carried great weight with them. And all of a sudden you're saying that Jesus was greater than Moses? Uh, they were accused teacher, uh, Stephen of teaching this, that Jesus was God. This is what separated their faith. This was blasphemous words for the Jewish elite. They said that Jesus was greater than the temple. This was a very big deal to them because they considered the temple a very holy place. This was deeply personal for them because God was connected to the physical temple. Over the years when they were uh, being... Uh, during the exodus of Moses, wherever uh, they went, God's presence was physically there. Uh, there was a fire of, uh, uh, there was a cloud of fire during the day, and then a cloud at night. Like God's physical presence was there, and so when the temple was built, His physical presence was a very big deal. He was the very fulfillment of the law. This was a big deal because Moses connected. Uh, Moses is what connected the physical scriptures that was given by God to Moses, ended up being the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so when you consider all of these four things, it stripped away at the very fabric of their life, it stripped away of their identity, and then he sums it up at the end of verse 14 by saying this, plus he's going to change all of our customs. Now what customs would have changed for them? Uh, sacrifices would be still being done in the temple. Circumcisions were still being performed. The food laws were largely the same, at least for another couple chapters until we get to Acts chapter 10. So what were the customs that were being changed? I think there's three primary ones. Let me share them with you. They're not in your notes, but you can jot them down. Uh, the first custom that would have changed for them is baptism. Baptism was a significant new covenant for them. This was the outward expression of their faith. And what I love about the book of Acts is every time someone put their faith in Christ, they just got baptized. There was no waiting period. There was no delay. There was no, uh, it was the very first thing they did to identify with Christ and to identify with people. So baptism was new. All of a sudden, these Jewish people from their birth were saying, Wait a minute, we're already God's people. 
right? We're already God's people. Why do we have to identify with him again? And yet what Jesus was trying to get them to understand is this was a decision that you made, a covenant that you made with Christ to identify with him, to identify with God's people as a decision that you make. We're going to see some beautiful examples of baptism in the next few weeks, but baptism was a big change for them. Uh, The second big change for them was this, communion. Now, they had a Passover meal, um, but all all, uh, indications in Acts says they did communion every Sunday. Uh, In fact, I think they did it every day. You think we do it a lot. Uh, My indication in Acts is they did it every day. They had communion every day. Um, It began as a Passover meal, kind of like we celebrate the 4th of July or any other kind of holiday. They did it once a year. And yet now something new was being established. Jesus' covenant with the disciples was establishing this uh, new citizenship. They were identifying with his death, uh, his burial, his resurrection. And he said, as often as ye eat this, do this in remembrance of me. So they reminded themselves every week together, every opportunity they shared a meal together, uh, every opportunity they had someone there who was a recent convert to Jesus or maybe had not made a decision for faith, they had communion again together in order to explain the symbolism, what they did and what they were leaving and then what they were coming to. Now, according to the first six chapters, how often were people getting saved in the early church so far? It was daily. So I got to believe that the early church daily were taking communion together with new people at the table every day. So monumental changes. Uh, We now have baptism. We now have communion. The third thing was they worshiped on Sundays now. This was a change. They had been worshiping on Saturday with their Sabbath and their Jewish customs. They continued to do so. Uh, They continued to do that, but now they were also gathering on Sundays to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Stephen, what Stephen is doing is this. He's now pointing to a higher standard than the law, which is grace. He's now pointing to a higher person than Moses, which is Jesus. I love it when when people find out you're a Christian and they say, uh, so, oh, so you can't, and they give you the list, right? And I think the proper response in that moment is this. We have a much higher standard than what we can and can't do. We have a higher standard of how we live because of what Jesus has done in us and through us. So, of course, Stephen never taught against Moses, but his glorification of who Jesus is is what's getting manipulated, Let's keep reading the last verse. It says this, a last verse of this passage. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. You see, Stephen was on trial before the highest religious court he could face. He was examined by honored, educated, powerful people. And he's been falsely accused and seemed to have lost the popular support. I think the attention that Luke pays to his face is interesting. It didn't have a mild, soft, angelic look that we see in many paintings or maybe as you're imagining. I don't think it was a face of judgment or wrath. I think his face reflected the perfect peace and confidence of one that knows and trusts his God. 
His faith had the same reflected glory that perhaps Moses did as he beheld God intimately. The face of an angel also means that Stephen was at perfect peace. The point of this uh, expression is to convey the idea of a person reflecting some of God's glory and character in that moment. Next week, we're going to look at Stephen's defense. Uh, If you look at chapter 7, the very first words are this. uh, The high priest said to Stephen, are these things so? In other words, these accusations, are they true? And I can just picture Stephen take a deep breath and give the largest sermon recorded in the book of Acts, this defense he has of his faith, and we'll look at that next week. But I have some observations for you as we consider our introduction to Stephen. First observation is this. The mission of the church is to expand the kingdom of God. Not our kingdom, not our agenda, not our politics, not our policies. The mission of the church is to expand the kingdom of God. Do you know why we have a coffee bar when you walk in? So you don't fall asleep. It's, it's to provide a warm, inviting space for you to hear the truth of Scripture, be moved by worship, and for you to make a decision for Christ and to join us in expanding the kingdom. The reason why we have classes devoted for our kids by workers who are trained and who are prepped and who are background checked to provide a safe, loving place for our kids The reason we do that is so that at a young age, they are introduced to Jesus, so they can make a decision for Jesus. So when they go off to high school, how many of you want to go to high school right now? (laughs) My goodness, the battles that high schoolers have to face today, aside from just going to school, the expectations they have on them. The, uh, the glorification of everything outside of what we believe. Uh, the reason we provide a safe, loving place for them on Sundays and on Tuesday nights with youth group, or I'm sorry, Wednesday nights with youth group, is so one day they meet Jesus, and one day they make a decision for Jesus so they can join us, join the kingdom, and help expand the kingdom. The reason why we're going to have vacation Bible school in a few weeks, and the reason why we are going to uh, volunteer, and the reason why we're going to Uh, uh, dress up and and get out of character and take ourselves less seriously for a few hours a day for the kids is so that they can meet Jesus, so that the kingdom of God can expand. It's all so that we can expand the kingdom. And if our church ever gets involved in something that distracts us away from pursuing the expansion of the kingdom of God, I hope that you are Christian I hope that you are loving enough. I hope that you are welcome to say, Daniel, this is not right. And as, as God is my witness, as long as I have breath in my lungs, the mission of our church is going to be to expand the kingdom of God. This is what was so vital for the early church that when there was a complaint, they said, we need to finish, we need, we, we need to resolve this complaint because there's something bigger. Whatever we're arguing about between us two, we need to fix, we need to solve, we need to restore relationships. We're not going to kick those people out. We're not going to say they're not welcome. We're going to listen, we're going to validate, and we're going to resolve it. Why? Because there's something much bigger that we're pursuing. We're not going to create a divide right here when there's something greater we're pursuing, which is the expansion of God, the kingdom of God. 
Observation number two, as long as the mission of the church is to expand the kingdom of God, buckle up, the church will battle internal obstacles and external oppositions. As long as the mission of the church is to expand the kingdom of God, the church will battle internal obstacles and external opposition. I got a note on Thursday morning um, uh, from our worship team, and they were telling me what they had prayed for the night before. And one of the things they were praying for is, they said to pray for our church, pray for our pastors, because God is working and Satan is attacking. My goodness, if we ever have that prayer request stop in our church where Satan's not attacking, you know what that means? He's okay with what's happening. As long as the mission of the church is to expand the kingdom of God, we will face internal obstacles. That means we are going to disagree with one another. That means we're going to have values that maybe feel like we're different or uh, pursuits that might feel different. And if we're not careful, we'll allow what Hebrews says, we'll allow that root of bitterness to take root and to spring up and defile you and defile many. There will be external oppositions. We will have to take a stand for our faith. There will be opportunities and moments where we do. And as we do, let me give you this reminder. People are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. The enemy of our soul, Satan himself, is our enemy. Let me encourage you to pray for our church, to pray for our kids' department, to pray for our our pastors, myself and Darren, to pray for our elders, to pray for uh, all of these, uh, these uh, opportunities we have in the next few weeks and in the next few months. Uh, one, of the, one of the hardest things for our church in the last two or three years was to see many of the opportunities we had to gather just slowly dissipate. And you'll see in the next few weeks and the next few months, we are introducing new ways for us to gather. We're bringing back ways to gather. We're bringing back opportunities for us to gather, to get together, because as we do, I truly believe the kingdom of God will expand. Here's the thing. Most people come to church because of people. They just do. They know someone. Uh, you invited them. They're sitting next to you because you invited them. But people stay in church because of relationships. They come because of people, but they will stay because of relationships. So let me encourage you to pray for our church as we seek to really expand the kingdom of God. Because as we do, as we make that the priority, there will be internal obstacles and external opposition. Observation number three, the gospel is for everyone. I love what we're about to see in the book of Acts. You're going to see this church, this early church. Uh, there's a phrase in the book of Acts that says, these that turn the world upside down. Metaphorically, they're saying uh, everything we thought we knew about faith got upside down. Everything we thought we knew about the power of God flipped upside down. Everything we thought we knew about who God is was upside down because they really embraced this idea that the gospel 
is for everyone. Now, some people will avoid making decision for Christ because as uh, those instigators say, Jesus, he's going to change everything. And he does. Where there was no meaning, now there's all of a sudden meaning. Where there was no significance, there's all of a sudden significance. Where there was no hope, there's eternal hope. Boy, the gospel is for everyone. And it's time for the church to identify with Jesus. Because when it was time to, he identified for you. And he's waiting for us. When it was time to stand up for us, he prayed in the garden, not my will, but thine. He prayed to our Heavenly Father and he said, I know what's coming ahead of me. I know the cup that's about to be, uh, that I'm about to drink. And I do not, I would prefer not to do this, but again, not my will, but yours. Luke, of course, wrote the book of Acts. And before he wrote the book of Acts, his first book was called, what was it called? That's easy, guys. It was called Luke. In Luke 18, he, um, he records for us the stories of Jesus. And Jesus would often teach with stories and in the New Testament, we call them parables. My preacher growing up say, said that parables were an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? Uh, you guys had the same pastor, it sounds like. Luke said this about one of the stories. He said that Jesus said this, two men went to the temple to pray. Let's talk about this. They're calling it the temple. So immediately the Jewish people are like, oh good, these are two good guys. They're going to the temple. This is their place of honor. This is our place of worship. They went to the temple. One of them was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. Um, we'll talk about that in a moment. The Pharisee stood by himself. And he prayed a prayer. I want you to listen to his prayer. He says this. I thank you, God, that I'm not like the others cheaters sinners adulterers i'm certainly not like that tax collector in fact i in case you forgot god i fast twice a week and i give you a tenth of my income here's the tax collector and as if god needed it the tax collector starts giving god his resume I'm sorry, the Pharisee starts giving his resume. And the Pharisee, the Pharisee, of course, is educated. He is, uh, he is Jewish elite. He, he understands the Torah. He's memorized the Torah. He follows all of the laws of the Jewish custom. And he makes sure that everyone else is. And he says, man, God, thank you that I'm not like the others, these cheaters, these sinners, the adulterers. I'm so glad I'm not like this guy. And he says, uh, I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. And the tax collector, now we've got to understand, when, Jewish, when in the Jewish culture, when Jesus used a tax collector as an uh, example, insert the lowest of the low here. By the way, if you're watching or if you're here and you do taxes for a living, one of my best friends does, again, we're not talking about you. We're talking about a cultural reference 
That means the lowest of the low. This is why he's talking about Jewish tax collectors. He's talking about Jewish people that would tax his own people for the benefit of the Roman government. We're talking the likes of Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector, and Matthew cheated his own people so that the Roman government could stay within all of its power. And oftentimes what tax collectors would do is they would charge a rate and they would add to that rate and everything they collected above that rate became theirs. That's why, uh, that's why we get to uh, the story of Zacchaeus and it was such a powerful thing for Jesus to go to a tax collector's home. So when Jesus says there was these two men, one of them was a Pharisee and one was a prostitute. One was uh, a cocaine dealer. One was a, uh, the worst of the worst, the, 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 the criminal beyond criminal, the lowest of the lows. You wouldn't, you wouldn't stand in the same room next to him, let alone have a meal with him. This is who he's talking about. This guy comes into the temple and this is what he does. He stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest with sorrow. And he says, oh God, be merciful to me. Forgive me, I'm a sinner. It's an amazing, amazing dichotomy of two people. And you say, well, I'm definitely not like that guy. I'm definitely not like the Pharisee. And you say, yeah, I can identify with him sometimes, but where do I stand in this? Jesus said this, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home made right with God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Oftentimes, Jesus just says the parable. Luke, the verse right before this parable, tells us why Jesus is giving the parable. Jesus told the story to those who had great confidence in their own righteousness. He told this story for people who had great confidence in their own righteousness. And he's painting a picture saying, if you come to Jesus and you are, you are so proud of what you are not, and you're so proud of who you are not, and you have, you have given Jesus your resume of all the ways in, uh, that you have pleased him and honored him and, 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 and the list of things you've done to earn his approval, Jesus is saying... There's nothing you can do to earn it. And yet the sinner, the worst of the worst, the tax collector, this guy who's the lowest of the lows, can't even lift his eyes up towards heaven and he simply exclaims and he just says, Oh Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive me. Church, if, if, if we're trusting our own righteousness to be made right with God, the example of the parable is to tell us this. There's no earning our way into God's favor. This is why the gospel is for everyone. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And one of the beautiful things about communion is we all get the same size piece of bread. We all get the same juice. There's no ranking of who's who in our church uh, even further in the kingdom of God we all come equal to the foot of the cross 
the gospel is for everyone. And so if you're sitting here today or you're watching online or you're listening later in the week, let me encourage you with this. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing you can do to earn his love. He gives it out already. And he loves you and he died on a cross for you so that all could be part of the kingdom of God. And the way we live our lives now is a reflection of our citizenship. And so when you look at the way we live our life right now, it should reflect our heavenly citizenship. We should outdo one another in honor. We should not take ourselves so seriously. Romans encourages us this way. Don't think of yourselves too highly. But in love, honor, uh, defer to one another. The way we live and the way we breathe and the way we behave reflect our citizenship. Because the gospel is for everyone. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, as we consider these verses, as we consider Stephen's faith, Lord, we're grateful that as we come before you, we have the example of this individual who at all cost pursued the expansion of the kingdom of God. Father, I, I firmly believe there are people here uh, who need to make a decision for Christ. And Father, for some reason, there is an obstacle in their life. And part of it is we're, we're nervous, we're scared that you're going to change everything in our life. And yet, Father, in some ways, that's exactly what we're hoping for that you would change everything in our life. And so, Father, I'm praying for those who need to make this decision where they simply proclaim you as Lord and Savior and say, Lord, from this day forward, I'm yours. I'm a follower of you. For some, that means that they are ready or they're positioned to get baptized. And they're ready to make that decision. Father, I pray that you would just... um, Give them the courage to identify with you and to identify with other believers as you stood up for us, as you identified with us, Lord. Father, that means that for some of us, when we take communion today, we're going to have to repent of a sin. We're going to have to ask for forgiveness in an area of our life. And so, Father, I pray that we would have the courage to do so, that we wouldn't go through the motions, Lord, but that today would be significant because of what you've done in our heart. Father, I pray that as we consider the the Pharisee and the tax collector, that we would understand the heart and spirit behind that story, that there's nothing we can do to earn your love. There's nothing we can do to earn your good graces, you have already given it to us so richly. I'm going to ask that you keep your heads bowed for a moment. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.